Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Pregnancy is an exciting time, full of hope and wonder, and even trepidation. The addition of a child changes a person's life forever. And for victims of fetal abduction in the United States, their lives were brutally changed in a way they could never have imagined. In this series, we will explore cases of fetal abduction in America, from the highly publicized cases to the little known and every case in between. Join me, your host, Erica Kelly, for Fetal Abduction, a true crime podcast. It's a new podcast where we take a closer look at this rare yet heinous crime. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Fetal Abduction Pod and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. I know it's been quite a while since I've released an episode, um, uh, but I am back uh, going to every other week on Thursdays like I was before. And it's been a really long time since I've been recording an episode, so I'm really excited to be back. This episode covers a story that spans nearly 40 years and multiple states. A woman murdered in the summer of 1982 remained unidentified, much to the frustration of local law enforcement. It wasn't until 36 years later when the DNA Doe Project took on the case and was able to provide the most important piece of information, her name. Mount Rose is the highest peak in Washoe County, Nevada. The mountain looms over Lake Tahoe, just over the state line, and is home to dozens of miles of hiking trails. The summer months attract tons of outdoor enthusiasts eager to try and summit the 10,785-foot peak. The hike to the top will take you over 10 miles, with plenty of smaller hiking trails splitting off to various parts of the mountain. On July 17, 1982, hikers out on the trails for what they believed to be a fun summer day came across the body of a woman. They were walking a few hundred yards away from the highway near the summit of the mountain in an area known as Sheep Flats. Just off one of the trails, they came across the body of a woman near a fallen log. She was slumped over in a seated position in a way that investigators described as as if she was bending over to tie her shoes. She had been sexually assaulted and shot in the head. Whoever killed her left a pair of men's underwear over her bullet wound. 
The woman was white and somewhere between her mid-20s and mid-30s. She was 5 feet 5 inches tall and weighed approximately 120 pounds. She had brown hair and hazel eyes. She was wearing a light blue bathing suit, Lee Ryder brand jeans, and yellow sneakers. She was not found with any identification, wallet, or jewelry. She also didn't have any identifying marks or tattoos. Since she didn't have an ID on her, detectives weren't sure what her name was. She did have a notable vaccine scar and dental work that suggested that she may have lived in Europe. There was also a surgical scar on her lower abdomen that indicated she may have given birth to at least one child. Aside from that, there wasn't much to go on, and this presented a major problem for investigators. There was nothing left at the scene that pointed towards the deceased woman's identity or where she came from. And every summer, tourists from all over the world descend on Lake Tahoe, and taking into account her teeth and vaccine scar, there was a possibility that this woman was from out of the area or even out of the country. Since there were no leads on her origin or identity, she was dubbed the Sheep Flats Jane Doe. She is also sometimes referred to as the Washoe County Jane Doe. Law enforcement estimated that she had been killed sometime the evening before. They also believed that she was killed where she was found and not left there after being killed somewhere else. Since there was no evidence of a struggle at the scene, investigators theorized that this woman was familiar with the person who killed her. There were no local missing persons reports that matched her appearance, and investigators expanded their search to no avail. They were following any and every lead, no matter how small or insignificant it seemed, but there was simply no evidence that pointed to her true identity. Two days after her body was discovered, investigators held a press conference and sent around a sketch rendering of her face. They said they had completely hit a dead end in the search for who she was, and if anyone had any information, they begged them to come forward. In an August 5, 1982 article from the Reno Gazette Journal, investigators announced that they had run down over 30 leads and tips that had all hit a dead end. The sheep's flat Jane Doe was still unidentified, and the police had run out of viable leads. There were still no missing persons cases that matched her physical description, and this further confirmed to police that she probably was not from the area. They expanded their search to departments beyond Nevada and still came up empty, which led them to believe that whoever she was, she was estranged from close friends and family who would have otherwise reported her missing. It was briefly theorized that this woman perhaps worked for one of the many area casinos. These casinos tended to employ lots of people, and many of them seasonally. However, none of the casinos reported that they had an employee who stopped coming to work unexpectedly, so detectives hit yet another dead end. By the end of the summer in 1982, the investigation into the murder of the Sheep Flats Jane Doe had gone cold. Her identity was still a mystery, and her killer was presumed to be walking around free. With no one to claim her body, she was buried in a cemetery in Reno. 
There was no service for her, but her case generated a lot of local interest. So when members of a local church found out that her body was buried without a memorial service, they organized a small funeral for her because even though they did not know who she was, they were moved by her story and many in attendance said they felt a connection to her and a great sadness that she was buried alone. A psychic renewed interest in her case in late 1982 when she claimed that she knew the identity of her killer and the reason that she was murdered. The psychic was a 57-year-old housewife named Dorothy Allison, and she had a reputation among investigators all over the country. Law enforcement in Washoe County was not familiar with Dorothy Allison, but other investigators swore by her visions and claimed that she provided leads that led to major breakthroughs in multiple cases. A reporter from the Reno Gazette reached out to Dorothy in 1982 and asked if she had any comment on the Sheep Flats Jane Doe, and she said that she had three strong visions regarding the case. The captain of the detectives unit that was investigating the case noted that they do not generally believe that psychics are helpful, but in this particular case, they had no other leads to investigate, so they felt there was no harm in looking into what she had to say. Some of what Dorothy told investigators was considered to be material to the case and if released could hurt the investigation, but law enforcement did release some of the following information. Dorothy said that the victim had been at Reno International Airport within two days of being murdered. Dorothy also said that there was not one murderer, but two, and this woman was killed because she threatened to release the contents of a, quote, special document that concerned a relative. Dorothy also said that one of the killers was extremely intelligent, and those that knew him or her would be shocked to hear that they killed someone. She implied that the killers could be male and possibly a set of brothers or even twins. She also said that she believed that Jane Doe was killed in a car, but this contradicted evidence that law enforcement had released that indicated that she was killed where she was found. Dorothy did not have a name for the unidentified woman, but she did provide a common male name that she said belonged to one of the killers, and it was either their first name or part of their last name. Although we don't know what the name was, it was so general that it did not provide any useful leads that could be narrowed down or investigated. Although Dorothy didn't provide any information that was useful in this particular case, she did have a couple of high-profile wins, so to speak, where her visions that she described to police ended up being helpful or correct. In 1967, Dorothy reported that she woke up from a terrible nightmare where she saw a small boy dead in a drain pipe that connected to a pond and that both of his shoes were on the wrong feet. She believed that her dream was a vision that was showing her the location of a local missing five-year-old boy named Michael Kerchix. She told police who did not put much stock in her story, but they had also run out of leads themselves. An investigator visited the site that she described in her dream, and they found Michael's body exactly where she said it would be, with his shoes on the wrong feet. Then in 1976, Susan Jacobson, then 14, disappeared. A large investigation ensued, but quickly hit a dead end. 
Dorothy said that the girl was dead and that she would be found near a church with two steeples and two bridges, but only one of the bridges would be used by cars. Two years after she disappeared, two children found her body in a shipyard in Staten Island. Eerily enough, Susan's body was reportedly recovered near a church with two steeples and two bridges. Only There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One of which allowed cars. Despite these detailed and kind of creepy coincidences, Dorothy was also often wrong as well. She was brought to Georgia to advise on the Atlanta child murders, but she did not provide any visions that led to useful leads. She reportedly gave police several dozen names, and none of them were Wayne Williams. She would later contradict law enforcement and say that she did, in fact, give them the name Wayne Williams as a possible suspect. Dorothy also went to New York to advise on the Son of Sam investigation, and the visions she had in relation to that case were incorrect as well. In all, Dorothy's visions about the identity of the Sheet Flats Jane Doe and the details of her murder did not provide any leads. Aside from that, the investigation went cold, and Jane Doe's identity remained a mystery. The DNA Doe Project is a nonprofit organization founded in 2017 by Colleen Fitzpatrick and Margaret Press, and they work to identify unidentified persons using forensic genealogy. In February 2018, Washoe County detectives had been sitting with this cold case for over 30 years. When they heard about the work being done at the DNA Doe Project, they asked for their assistance in uncovering her identity. The DNA Doe Project was able to use DNA and genealogy tracing to track down Jane Doe's mother, a woman from Detroit named Blanche Silvani. From there, they were able to identify her father, John, and build the rest of her family tree. After 36 years, investigators were finally able to call the Sheep Flats Jane Doe by her name. 
Mary Silvani. Knowing her name unlocked an avalanche of information. Mary Edith Silvani was born on September 29, 1948, which would have made her 33 years old when her body was found on Mount Rose. She was born and raised in Michigan and had two brothers. Her upbringing was reportedly rough. Her mother struggled immensely with mental illness and was not often at home. Her father passed away when she was 16 and not even out of high school, and after that, she was on her own. The same year Mary was killed, her brother took his own life in San Diego. He was troubled into adulthood and had served time in the 70s for killing a man in Central California. Her other brother was also deceased, but his son, Mary's nephew, said that he knew that his father had a sister, although they were not close. In fact, it seemed like she was not close to anyone in her family or from anyone back home in Michigan and had not been for some time before her murder. Once they were able to identify Mary, detectives realized that part of the reason they had such a hard time identifying her was because she was never reported missing. Once she was identified, some of her old high school friends came forward after finding out about the discovery in a newspaper. The McKenzie High School class of 1966 had long since lost touch in the 52 years between their graduation and Mary's identification, but they described the Mary they remembered as a sweet girl who was unassuming and unpretentious. One of her high school friends was a woman named Nancy, who had since relocated to Colorado. She gave an interview to the Detroit Free Press after Mary was identified. She said she was good friends with Mary and stayed friends with her throughout high school. According to Nancy, Mary was frequently at her house and even vacationed with her family during the summers. In 1968, Mary was one of the bridesmaids in Nancy's wedding. After graduation, they drifted apart. Nancy noted that she didn't think that Mary, like many recent high school graduates, knew what she wanted to do with her life. Nancy said the last time she remembered seeing Mary was in 1972. Mary was pregnant and living in a home for young women who were unmarried and expecting, and she said that she planned to give the baby up for adoption. According to Nancy, they spoke one more time on the phone after Mary had her baby. She told Nancy she had given up the baby for a closed adoption, but the adoptive parents would send her occasional pictures. After that, Nancy and Mary both moved out of Michigan and lost touch. Nancy never reconnected with Mary before her murder and assumed that Mary had gone off to live her life. In 1968, Mary went on a trip to Washington, D.C. with one of her other high school friends, Cindy. Nancy was invited on the trip but ultimately unable to attend. The two girls spent a few days exploring the city before returning to Michigan. And after their return, Cindy got married as well, and Mary was left on her own as the last single friend. Mary eventually relocated from Michigan to California. She lost contact with those who knew her from her life in Michigan, and not much is known about her time in California or how she ended up in Reno at the time of her death. 
Aside from finally uncovering her identity, the DNA Doe Project was able to help identify who killed her. Mary was sexually assaulted near the time of her death, and there was DNA left at the scene by the perpetrator. Using the same techniques that they used to uncover Mary's identity, the DNA Doe Project was able to trace the familial DNA of her murderer as well. Once they narrowed down the suspect, investigators were able to test the DNA of the children of the man that they believed was responsible. The DNA was a match, and finally investigators had the answer to the two main questions that had plagued them for nearly four decades. They now knew the identity of the Sheep Flats Jane Doe, and they now knew who killed her. The DNA left at the scene belonged to a man named James Richard Curry. Curry was born in Texas in 1946, making him about 36 at the time of Mary's murder. Curry died in a hospital in 1983 after he hung himself in prison. He had just confessed to murdering three of his acquaintances. There wasn't any evidence other than the DNA left at the scene that connected Curry to Mary, therefore he was not a suspect in her death earlier in the investigation. In January of 1983, there was a double homicide at a self-storage facility in Santa Clara, California. A couple, Sharon and Gerald Novoselets, were found shot dead, and Curry, who was also a manager at the same location, went to the police station for voluntary questioning, and during the course of the investigation, detectives became increasingly suspicious of him. They served a search warrant at his house based on his voluntary police interview and information from other witnesses. They found another dead body belonging to a man named Richard Lemon Jr. on Curry's property. Less than 12 hours after the discovery of the third body, Curry was found hanging in his jail cell. In February of 1983, less than a month after Curry died, police announced that they believed that Curry would have been tied to the disappearance of a man who was last seen five years ago. James DeWitt Robinson had not been seen since 1978, when he worked as a locksmith alongside Curry. When police uncovered the second body in Curry's home, they also found personal items that belonged to James Robinson. Police told the press that they believed Robinson was targeted by Curry because he had recently come into some money and Curry killed him to steal it. Investigators also said that Curry allegedly told them that he killed his co-workers Sharon and Gerald over a social slight. Not much is known about James Richard Curry since his arrest and death happened so quickly. Due to these circumstances, there's a lot that remains unknown, including the extent of his crimes. It was noted that he had a hair-trigger temper and would have violent outbursts. We know that Curry killed Mary because of the evidence left at the scene, but Curry never confessed to killing a woman near Reno, and it's unknown, but probably safe to assume, that these were not Curry's only victims. Although we will probably never know why Curry killed Mary, we can at least know who she was and who was responsible for her death. At the time of her discovery, Mary's closest living relative was a nephew, son to one of her brothers that she lost contact with years before her death, a nephew that she never had the opportunity to meet, 
and even though she remained unknown for 36 years, Mary was finally able to be remembered by those who knew her as the shy and sweet girl from Michigan who was just trying to find her way in the world. In total, the DNA Doe Project has helped identify over 20 unidentified people. The organization runs entirely on volunteers, who spend hours stitching together genealogical backgrounds from all over the world to try and bring answers in cases where leads went cold long ago. If Mary Edith Silvani were alive today, she would be 71 years old. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to source material and further reading on the episode and more information about misconduct. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at misconductpod. And if you have a case you would like to see covered, I have a case submission tab on my website. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and I really like taking suggestions from listeners, so if you submit a case, I will do my best to cover it on a future episode. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.